While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Andrew, I know what a hobbit is, okay? Uh-huh. What is a hobbit? It's a short man with big feet. Not always a man. Short person, big feet, lives in a shire. Uh-huh. In middle place. Middle earth. Middle, middle earth. Sex. Yeah, you almost got there. Mid- middle earth. Middle earth. Okay, that's... Well, I was going to say New Zealand, but I knew that wasn't right. No. I know what they are. I don't need to read those books do i uh i think you do i think the listenership has spoken the listenership to overdo a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read yes that one and my name is craig and your and name is andrew andrew what <laughs> i'm keeping you on your toes buddy uh, i'm just on my butt now i fell <laughs> i fell and went boom i heard my bottom How's your tush right now? It's okay. Well, you sound kind of sad about it. How's, no, just, but like, can we, do we need to talk about your tush right now? I know. I just need a little, I just need a minute. How's your emotional tush? It's fine. It's, yeah? It, no, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Got a little bump on the hardwood? No, it's okay. Okay. I don't know what's happening. Do you want to talk about hobbits anymore? No. <laughs> Because you're just going to make me sad. Why? Like, you're the one You're the one who didn't read Lord of the Rings, and you're upset that everyone's mad at you. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I don't, think, I don't think that you have any right to be upset. Why? Because you should have read them. I'm more upset that you put me on blast with the listeners listening. Oh, what? We can't fight in front of the kids now? Like, what is <laughs> What is happening? I don't know. The kids seem to like it, so I just think they they would be they would be good episodes to do. And so we're still we're still having a show meeting on air. So what is the show actually about? Oh, it's about things that we read and then we talk about them. Okay, and you read a book this week, and what is the book? Yeah, I read a play called Wit by Margaret Edson. So we should be pretty qualified to talk about this, right? Well, after that, open heck yeah! On account of we're so witty. Yep. Got so many rejoinders. Oh, good one. I don't have anything to follow that up with. I, I need to step out of this podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just need to take a breather. Uh, it is worth noting that this play was recommended to us by Albie. Albie? Albie is the pronunciation, pronunciation I use. A supporter of the show uh, who has done so through our Patreon campaign which meant that their recommendation got kicked towards the top of our list. Um, So yeah, that's why I read this book. Okay, so it's a play. Um, Tell me more about what's what's the deal with Margaret Edson. What isn't the deal with Margaret Edson? Actually, the first deal that you find out about Margaret Edson any time that you try to look up information about her is that she's a school teacher in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Like... Yeah, you get the you get the feeling that that really is what Margaret wants to be known for. So like, she was born in sixty one. Uh, I think her dad was like a political journalist. Her mom, I know, worked in some capacity in healthcare, but I don't know specifically what. Might have even just been as a volunteer. Um, and I know that she's a social worker. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, I know that. She attended Sidwell Friends School in D.C. This is where the Obama kids go. Is that true? I don't know. I know very little about the Obama kids. <laughs> That's like the one thing I know about them. Sasha and Malia are their names. And they have I a dog. I figure just like leave them alone. They probably get enough stuff, right? Like. Because all those people like hate their dad and 
they're growing up in the middle of everything and, and they got girls go trying to get A's and B's. Like, come they're on. Just, they're just trying to be teenagers. Mm. They're trying to have some Bridge to Terabithia adventures and instead <laughs> we're making them grow up in the spotlight. So just, I think it's, I frankly think it's enlightened of me not to know anything about them. <laughs> Okay, we shall heretofore never talk about them on the show ever again, unless they write a book. Or unless they want to be guest hosts. All right, but if they're listening right now, they can... That would put them, I think, in an even bigger spotlight than they're in right now. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I've got to say, I've, I have a lot of respect for Margaret Edson, because Wit is the first and only play she's ever written. She wrote it back in uh, 91 or in the early 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, it. She shopped it around for a while, got rejected, 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 until one uh, company out in Costa Mesa, California, picked it up. And she's been, you know, it's it, from, it went from there to New York to um, Union Square, which is also in New York, just bigger, <laughs> and it won... <laughs> A bunch of awards it became an emmy award-winning hbo movie like it it became this huge thing and i think at this point in most writer biographies this is the part where they quit their day job and become writers right they well if not they have already done that and now they become sellouts <laughs> right yes of course that's the that's the life cycle <laughs> but she just went she teaches school and that's what she does. And she says, you know, she doesn't want to write during the summers because you need to like go and do interesting things and rest during the summers. Yeah. Like she, she had that one story to tell and she told it. And now she's like, well, I guess I could write more plays, but I kind of need to teach social studies to these kids. So could you come back later? If that she's teaching kindergartners, man, she is like a, she was teaching kindergartners. She moved up. There was actually uh, there was a big uh, piece in 2012 in the oh, New York I missed Times the 2012 about, article. about what she was doing. Um, there's a particular um, she th- okay, so she was teaching k- kindergarten up until 2010 or so, oh. and then her partner Linda Merrill uh, turned to her one evening and said, "We're not going to have 14 more years of the letter M and our dinner table <laughs> conversations." Linda sounds awesome. Yeah, I know. So, so, uh, so Margaret Edson teaches uh, middle school social studies. Okay, now, okay, which seems more engaging. So, and um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, Edson attended Smith College, um, and a lot, a couple like neat tidbits I learned about her were from like a 1999 Smith Alumni Quarterly, which is like. I just those are great places to get profiles on people because there's like a real earnestness to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like everyone just kind of wants to feel good about what's going on, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. And I assume they're trying to get money out of somebody, out of these, somebody, but not each other, <laughs> but not each other. Like that's the good part. Um, at the time when she was teaching kindergarten in 1999, she had two hamsters in her kindergarten classroom named Speedy and Slowpoke. Mm-hmm. Which I think is pretty funny. Jar Pokemon, both of them. Well, just Slowpoke. <laughs> anyway, my favorite Pokemon is Speedy Gonzalez. He's my favorite Pokemon. He's hard to catch, <laughs> if you can believe it. Gotta use your Master Ball. Uh, did you know, Andrew, that Margaret Edson, when she was like four or five, her neighbor was Julia Louise Dreyfus. No, and they act, that's cool. And they like put on little plays in their basement with each other. <laughs> Do I, they still talk to you? Think? Uh, I think so. The one the alumni article said that uh, everyone still remembers one of the plays. I don't know what that means. They didn't say what it was about. Okay. Uh, it was just, it was very it was infamous. <laughs> we we don't talk about that play. Um. But so the inspiration for this play in particular, which we'll get to in a few minutes, uh, came from Edson's time after college when she was working at a unit clerk in an AIDS and oncology unit of a research hospital. And she said that she equated that with the role of like a theater stage manager where you are not medically trained at all, but you're kind of working to put all the doctors in the right rooms at the right time. 
Mm-hmm. So you have all not you have this knowledge of everything that's going on, but no power to act on it. Okay. And she said that let her be in situations and places where she was perhaps like seeing things or witnessing scenarios that maybe she shouldn't have been, just in terms of how intimate they were or or whatever might have been going on. Uh, because ultimately, on on the medical hierarchy, she was non-existent. Um, and she was struck particularly by ovarian cancer, and not like person. No, not personally, but the people who had and were being treated for ovarian cancer, and how they yeah, were the, dealing one of with the, the things, disease. Yeah, one of the things I thought was was interesting about this was that she wrote this play and she did it all from like secondhand knowledge. Yeah, like save her time in that oncology unit, and. It was all based on other people's lives, other people's work, other people's readings, you know. So second, second hand. I know. In, I'm not, in other words. I'm not just, jeez. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes I hear a thing you say, I agree with it so much, I just need to say it four times. Is that okay? okay. No, that's fine. That's great. You say it as many times as you want, buddy. Pass the salt, please. Buddy. <laughs> Uh, one of the secondhand sources that she used was uh, her mentor, Ruth Mortimer, who was a um, scholar in her own right and had cancer um, and one of the first people that Margaret wrote about or like wrote to when she was writing the play at the beginning, took it to her and uh, they spent days right away just kind of going through the play one by one. Um, and she was a huge champion of the play, and it seems like as kind of her spirit has been woven into the piece. Um, yeah, it's 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 the external um, stuff about the play is kind of interesting too, because when she was originally shopping it around, it was much longer than it is. Like it yes. was originally two acts, and then it was, um, I believe, it was the the uh, Costa Mesa, uh, whatever whatever theater put it on in the first place, condensed it down to one very long excruciating act so is that is that how it appears in the book that you read or yeah it's i mean it's written i think the runtime is estimated at about 100 minutes uh which is pushing it for a stage production you know people are more than willing to sit and watch a three-hour movie on say lord of the rings but (laughs) there's no intermission and just to pick an example yeah just to pick something out of the out of the clear blue sky um, but for a play, there's something about paying attention to actual people in front of you and not disengaging at all, or at least not feeling like you're supposed to, that kind of seems to require a break after 90 minutes. And, and if it doesn't, then it's like a piece about endurance and about whether or not the audience can take it. Uh, <laughs> and I would certainly say that this, this play is willing to push you there a little bit but uh, on the page it is structured as just a series of scenes with a note from the playwright that there's really to be no stoppage in the action you know okay Um, you might change lights you might have a sound or music cue play but you wouldn't really like take a break there's no nobody gets a chance to get up and go to the bathroom and get milk duds yeah you're not going you're not checking your program to see who the players are midway through the last time we went to see a play in New York, it was You Can't Take It With You, okay. I think, okay. with uh, James Earl Jones in it. Okay. It was, really, it was actually really good. But we So during the intermission, we went up to the, to the bar or whatever, and we got, I think we got a little, like a box of snacks, like a movie-sized box of snacks each, and a, like a mixed drink in a sippy cup mm-hmm. each. And they give you that sippy cup because they don't trust you not to dump it everywhere. That is, that is correct. Yes. And it was like $35. Oh. <laughs> so I, I would like to think that Margaret Edson is doing a public service. Like, don't pay, don't pay for the theater snacks. Just sneak them in. Don't sneak them in. Don't you dare sneak them in. You mess up everything. Where do you think that they get all the stagehands for Broadway plays? They were all people who snuck candy into the theater originally. <laughs> They've all been conscripted. Yeah. <laughs> this is your life now. 
Yes, just like everyone washing dishes at restaurants are former Dine and Dashers, Andrew. That's exactly how it works. I'm just saying that the snacks are so much more expensive that the punishment would be oh, to like, pay it accordingly off. Yeah. more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, last tidbit about, you know, Margaret and the play coming to be, or, or at least coming into its own. Uh, when it won the Pulitzer Prize and the prizes were announced, uh, the story goes that Margaret was in the middle of a lesson about counting to two using James Brown's I Feel Good, which I think is <laughs> awesome. And then a bu- Two isn't very far. No. I mean, I'm, not, I'm less impressed than I maybe could be. I think it's like doing it rhythmically, you know, like just, I don't know. Maybe they were counting twos. I have no idea. I'm not five. Sure. Um, right. And then when the flowers started coming for the prize that she won you know, the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, she used the flowers as an opportunity to, like, teach kids about bugs. <laughs> <laughs> What's that say about the flowers that she got? <laughs> like, she was te- she was teaching them about bees and the dances that bees do. Uh, seems a little racy for kindergartners, but... As long as you don't get any birds in there. I suppose. You gotta keep the bees and the birds separate until people are at least 12. Until they bring the form that their parents signed in and they can watch the video. <laughs> that is correct. Let's, let's talk about this play. Yeah, let's talk about Tell this play. Tell me about play. Wit. So, Why is it called Wit? Okay. Well, on the cover of most editions of the play, uh, any published edition, not like an acting script edition, you will see it spelled W semicolon T. And the semicolon is like really obtusely functioning as an I, if that makes sense. Like the letter yes, I. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, And that is derived from the poetry of John Donne, D-O-N-N-E. He's a English poet from the early 17th century. He's one of the metaphysical poets. And the main character, Dr. Vivian Baring, who has ovarian cancer and at the beginning of the play directly tells the audience that within two hours' time, she will die. So no real spoiler. Get mad at the character. Um, she is an expert on the work of John Donne. And uh, I think Mar- uh, Margaret Edson is quoted as saying she wanted someone who is an expert in something that required a lot of work and was a little obtuse. So she picked uh, John Donne because she'd heard that his poems were some of the hardest to study. <laughs> and then, why did like what, what was the motivation there? So what that kind of takes shape over the course of the play. Um, okay, well, if it's if it's yeah. better spread out, then then let's just keep going. Yes, you're you're right to to say like, well, that's a very deliberate choice. Let's talk about that. Um, I mean, it could just be that she wanted she wanted nobody to be able to fact check her, which is maybe why I would do something like that. But well, I there's there is something to that. But uh, so Vivian Baring has ovarian cancer. At the top of the play, she is on stage wearing a baseball cap to cover her bald head from chemotherapy, and she's wearing two hospital gowns. And she has an IV that goes directly into her chest rather than into her arm. Um, mm-hmm. It's stage four ovarian cancer. So her odds are not... Of Are there five stage, no, how many stages? No, stage four. Okay, is, there are four stages. Yes. Okay. And I did, a, cool. yeah, I did a little bit of research on this. Stage four is... You know, I've been lucky enough that I have not had a family member go through a significant... Pro, like bout with cancer like i i yeah. think i have some relatives who've gone through like skin cancer and melanoma and stuff like that um but no kind of like aggressive someone dealing with that kind of thing yeah so my mom's mom had a tussle with it but i was like i was two or three like i was way too young to to remember anything about it so yeah um so stage four means that and this is just i I defer to medical professionals. I learned this from the American Cancer website earlier today. Um, the That the original site of the cancer has spread to distant organs, which means it's much harder to treat. Uh, and apparently right now, this is not even of the time of the play's writing, but right now uh, women with 
stage four ovarian cancer, their survival rate is something like 17 percent. Yeah. Uh, tw- yeah. I think I think any kind of cancer by the time it like metastasi- yes. metastasizes like that, it's stuff gets bleak pretty fast. And, and, the, and it's not only that your prognosis is bad, but like the quality of that time that you have left is pretty bad. Precisely. And one of the tricky things about ovarian cancer, apparently, is that only 20% of all cases are caught at an early stage. Mm-hmm. There's no guaranteed screening test for it. Uh, there's one kind of sound wave-based test that it'll tell you that there's a tumor, but it won't really tell you what the tumor is. And then there's a protein-based test that will tell you that something's wrong, and it could be ovarian cancer, but it's also just a protein, so maybe your body's just wigging out. Uh, and so they've like they've been trying to use those screeners for people who might be genetically predisposed to it, but neither of them are like, here's the test that we use, kind of like they use um, pap smears and mammograms um, for other types of female reproductive system cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, the, just some kind of stats to let you know how high the stakes are, like... 22,000 women will receive a new diagnosis of this this year in 2014, I guess, or 2015. As this 2015. Yeah. Um, and 14,000 women, not necessarily of those women, but um, someone will die of ovarian cancer this year. Uh, and that, and I assume that figure includes the undiagnosed cases. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so it's an incredibly hard to catch early and thus ends up in stages where uh, it is largely untreatable. So Baring is in this situation where she goes to a doctor who determines Dr. I'm forgetting his name, Dr. Kalekian. I didn't want to pronounce a K name wrong because I didn't want to get away from me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he recommends an experimental chemo treatment. Now, I, I don't know enough about chemo treatment to say whether or not this would be experimental now this play was written 20 25 years ago and got a bunch of acclaim about 15 years ago so take this for what it's worth sure um but it would be eight rounds of full chemo dosage like no weaning off of it once a month and the the cycle he describes is pretty sounds pretty awful like a week of full treatment a week of feeling like why would i ever do this anymore just let me die now and then, like, two weeks of maybe getting back to, oh, hey, my cancer is just bothering me. And yeah. then you're right back in another cycle of chemo. Um, and because it's ex- experimental and she's at a research hospital at a university, she's not just seen as a patient to be treated. She is seen as her ovaries possibly, you know, like, she talks about how they will write about her in a journal at some point. Well, they're not going to write about her. She says they're going to write about her ovaries and whether or not her ovaries got better or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so there's that. Um, the two people treating her other than uh, her doctor, Kalekian, are a residential nurse, um, Susan Monahan, excuse me, and her f- oncology fellow, Dr. Jason Posner, who's very... He, what's weird is he took her class at the university before he went into, you know, before he went into his fellowship. So Mm -hmm. he's familiar with her like super difficult, rigorous poetry class on this one poet who she's published books on, uh, took it to get his credit and like prove that he could pass the hardest English class on campus and has carried that diligence into his medical work. So he, He is constantly reminding himself to be, quote, clinical with her, which is like starting conversations with, hi, how are you feeling today, even if she's puking into a bucket. Um, right. You know, that and, kind of thing. And that was that was another thing as I was I was reading about um, Edson was that she wrote, I mean, a lot of this, at least before she was a teacher at all. Yes. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Which I which I think makes the fact that the main character is kind of a teacher to be more interesting i don't know yeah i well and she so we can kind of skip around now because the arc of the piece is vivian talking to the audience about her last hours and days 
um, and then walking her, walking us through both the treatment itself in several vignettes as well as a few kind of defining scenes of her life. There are other plays that work this way. Um, How I Learned to Drive is the first one that springs to mind, um, which is a woman working through uh, her uncle molesting her at an an early age and and the other issues surrounding that, and that play kind of scatters all over the place in terms of space-time, but is largely just one character telling their personal story to the audience uh, and then acting themselves out at different ages and, and points in time. And and really what that does is the play is not literalistic, kind of like these technicians from the hospital move on any relevant set pieces, but it's my understanding that the character never change like never needs to change clothes or anything like that. Um, okay. if that makes sense, Andrew. Like the You mean in terms of the character up on stage, like the actual actress who would be playing this? Yes. Part? Vivian Baring, the like as you are watching her, I it is not my understanding that she would ever like change her costume. You were okay. even when in one scene she's a five year old version of herself talking to her dad about a children's book, and in another scene she's like a twenty five year old student being berated by her mentor for understanding a poem wrong. Yeah, um, that kind of. I mean, think that, that that seems like movie flashback magic one hundred and one is like having the having the grown up person be in in place of a child person, and it's just kind of understood by everybody involved that that's what's going on. Yes. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And I think like I don't think I don't think that's too much of a stretch to make. No, it certainly isn't. And the plenty of plays work like this. The interesting thing about this one is that Vivian constantly references the fact that she's in a play. By saying, like, there's one or two scenes where she talks about the next line that she will have. Uh, She talks about the last lines that she has in the play before she passes. She seems to be making it a play so that she doesn't have to deal with passing yet, if that makes sense. So she can, like, remove herself from it? Yes. A little bit? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, And that goes to the point about why John Donne, why this uh, early, you know, why this early sixth, early 17th century poetry about death and mortality that is, you know, of the characteristic wit. Okay. Um, so in one of her uh, lectures that we see, like that gets reenacted for us, I want to make sure I find the right page. Uh, she has some students on stage kind of dissecting a poem and she's talking about how every once in a while like a student almost says something smart. I don't know if you remember that feeling from undergrad, Andrew, where you're like in a class, you think you get what's going on and you are just determined to walk out there and say what comes to mind and hope that it's correct. Yeah, like that was my whole college career. There, There were a lot of classes where I made a deal with myself where I had to talk. I had to talk. I had to be ready to talk once. Ah, that's good. In every class. Because I know that if I talked once, then nobody would expect me to talk anymore. (laughs) I think I would be a better college student now than I was when I was in college. (laughs) But yeah, it was was about picking whatever intellectual ground I felt like the most at home on and just staking it out and... If there's nobody's hands going to go up faster than mine when it comes time to talk about whatever that very particular thing is. I would always get into that trap where if I felt like I'd bonded with a teacher, I would, I'd know I would sometimes take over a conversation and not, okay. you know what I mean? Like then the class just becomes about me and that person rapping and like, which is like cool for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. In yeah. retrospect, it maybe wasn't the coolest thing. But I also know that in some classes, uh, people who would have that professor later would, you know, mention that they were friends with me. And that professor would be like, oh, yeah, I think I remember that kid. He's really quiet. And that per- and my friend was like, that's not true. What do you mean? Yeah, no, obviously you don't remember him. No. <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> and maybe I think I was quiet. Maybe I just didn't do the reading for that class. Case in point, this podcast. Um, yeah, I think this is this, this is just literary purgatory. It for really us. is. <laughs> like we're left to we're left to toil away, reading all the stuff that we didn't read, and we just have we have no idea when we're going to be released from our prison. 
So anyway, uh, (laughs) let's go back to John Donne and his metaphysical poetry. He is the author of Death Be Not Proud. I don't know if that's a quote that you've like maybe heard somewhere. Yes, I, I have I have heard that. I know nothing else about it, but I've heard it. So that poem is part of Dunn's cycle called The Holy Sonnets, where he is largely pondering what the heck happens with death and why is death the way that it is and how the heck is he going to deal with it. Later in his life, he apparently became an Anglican priest under King James I in England and seems to have figured his stuff out. <laughs> But this was earlier in his life. Uh, and Death Be Not Proud is the focal poem of of the play Wit. And I want to come back to that in just a second. Um, but this student in Vivian's class says, why does Dunn make everything so complicated? And Vivian says, well, why do you think that he makes it complicated? And she says, I think it's I think it's like he's hiding. I think he's really confused. Maybe he's scared, so he hides behind all this complicated stuff, hides behind this wit. I mean, if it's really something he's sure of, he can say it more simple, simply. He doesn't have to be such a brain or such a performer. It doesn't have to be such a big deal. Uh, and then Vivian says, well, perhaps he is suspicious of simplicity. And student two says, perhaps, but that's pretty stupid. <laughs> It says, well, if he's trying to figure out God and the meaning of life and big stuff like that, why does he keep running away? Uh, so the one of the big things that Vivian says is so wonderful about John Donne is how he revels in the complexity of these big questions about God and what happens when you die and what the heck is heaven anyway and why do, like... Why does it matter that men sin and go to heaven when animals kill each other all the time and whether or not men go to hell or not and animals just kill each other all the time and who knows what happens. Um, And the student obviously is going to this, the heart of this saying, maybe he's just scared. So he's, you know, showing off his intellect, showing off his wordplay, showing off his ability to construct a paradox so that he doesn't actually have to deal with the fact that he doesn't know the answer to the question. Yeah. I mean, I I think we all knew that guy in undergrad too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I suppose but it, it's it gets to this central question I think is at the heart of the play which is the dehumanizing aspect of kind of grappling with research and the advancement of knowledge first and foremost above dealing with either the creators of that knowledge or the people who will derive benefit from it Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I want to unpack that because I think there's a lot of relevance there. Like what happens over the course of the play is uh, Vivian going from this person who thinks about poetry the way that Posner thinks about medicine. So like that is the parallel that I that I was mentioning earlier. Um, she identifies with this fellow who sees her solely as a research object because he's out there to cure cancer because cancer is the most fascinating thing on the planet to him. Mm-hmm. She is out there to solve these poems because they are the most intricately woven thing she can conceive of. Over the course of the play, I, she seems like she would take a little less of the complication if it meant she had a person to connect with. Her parents died at a young age. She has no next of kin. It doesn't appear as if she has friends. She has no emergency contact. Um, the only Man, that's like that's shorthand for sad, right? Like if you're oh, yeah. if you're writing a creative thing, and you just want to establish right up front that this is a lonely person, like they have no emergency contact, or like their cat is their emergency contact, or something. Like there's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me read actually. Um, go, speaking of dehumanization, I want to read one of the first interactions between Jason and Vivian, which is part of her medical exam. Jason talks first. How old are you? 50. Are you married? No. Are your parents living? No. How and when did they die? My father suddenly when I was 20. My mother slowly when I was 41 and 42 of cancer, breast cancer. Jason, cancer? Vivian, breast cancer. I see. Any siblings? No. Do you have any questions so far? Not so far. Well, that about does it for your life history. Yes, that's all there is to my life history. <laughs> like, 
that's a page of okay so everyone in your family's gone there's no one else you have cancer i guess that's you i guess that's your deal nothing yeah else. i mean i i guess i i can get why you would do that in a play or in a book mm-hmm. i don't know that there's anybody i don't know i think i think most people think that they have like maybe maybe they don't think they're interesting but they think that they have more interesting stuff like if if you're on this earth for 51 years i find it hard to believe that that your entire life could be boiled down to that one exchange like sh- surely there's some kind of reason if only like an internal reason why you were so alone like what what it is that either drives you away from other people or drives other people away from you like there's got to be more to that than that so i mean is that true in this or is edson just like leaning into that to like isolate this character more no i think it's a it's a root it's it's rueful on the part of the character she is certainly not agreeing with the statement that that is all there is to her life uh oh it's just like it's just like a a sarcastic sorry my delivery this is all i did yeah that's all i did there's there's actually a pretty entertaining what one of the closest things the play comes to a montage which it can really pull off because people are kind of coming off and on stage really quickly they take her through her battery of initial tests and while each successive technician just kind of asks basic biological information and what her name is she's like trying to tell them that she is a distinguished professor who has published all these papers on this uh poet and they're like what's your name get in the thing stop moving just do we need to scan your brain now okay so she's done stuff but the world at large doesn't care that much certainly not in the hospital and that's another thing that Edson's wanted to explore with the pieces she saw these women who were facing their disease with kind of bravery and dignity but the hospital would remove all of the context that gives that to you okay you know and that goes back to the to the point earlier about the costuming and how simplistic I think it needs to be and how devoid of context and personality it probably needs to be um, because otherwise there's Otherwise, you're not getting a true picture of, of how Vivian feels throughout this scenario. Yeah. Um, so where the play ends, I guess, is her, you know, grappling with her own mortality and, and kind of wishing for a little more compassion and kindness in her life. She, in, in a formative scene with her mentor in the past, Instead of going and hanging out with her friends after kind of having a failed office hours meeting, she dives right back into the library, and that seems to be kind of formulated for her. She has an an encounter with her RN where she decides to check do not resuscitate, the DNR, Mm -hmm. which is like, I don't, this pain is too much, I can't take it. If I flatline, like, let me go. Yeah. Um, And after she succumbs to a particular particularly terrible bout of pain she has what may or may not be a hallucination where her mentor comes and like offers to read her a john dunn poem in bed and she says no so she reads her like a children's book instead (laughs) and uh and so that like whether or not the character knows what's happening the play is showing her reject this guy's poetry as a way to deal with what's going on with her right now uh and then you watch the scene where she passes and Jason comes in and orders like a coat. He calls a code blue and the team runs in to try and resuscitate her. Susan runs in and says, what are you doing? It's a DNR. And he yells, but she's research, like capital R research. Uh and then he finally kind of concedes that they had checked the box and there was a mistake and his quest to advance knowledge was uh, the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends with a pretty stark image of you know, him broken in kind of chaos at the end of the play and her rising gracefully from the hospital bed in like a pool of light and then it's over. Um, so I think what you're left with is kind of not a literal, but 
there is a torch passing going on to him where she has she has learned or at least experienced some sort of transformation that the play is going to give to him at a, at a much earlier age. Mm-hmm. Um, he's only 28, I think, to her 51. Um, Plus you get one scene right at the end where they get somebody up in a rig and work some stage magic. Yeah. And make her float out of bed. Well, she doesn't float. She you like just said that she did. I said she rises. She okay, so she rises out of bed in a rig. I don't. And then she not, flies around the audience like Spider Man. Turn out, turn off the dark. You couldn't even say the name of that play right away because it's too preposterous. Spider Man, turn her, turn some dark. <laughs> Spider Man, turn down for what? <laughs> now I would go see that. <laughs> Come on, Julie Taymor, get back in there. Okay, so I have I have a question for you. Okay, and here and here it is. Okay, um, how is is it important at all? What kind of cancer she has? Because you you were talking, I don't know. We've been we've been talking about the character's isolation, and we've been talking about you were you were you were talking earlier, and I was and I was. I always get back to because I think this is something that I get preoccupied with is like leaving something behind, mm-hmm. and the fact that like you know the ovaries of course are attached to reproduction and that kind of thing like is is there anything there or is it or does it matter what kind of cancer she has at all it matters for reasons that are circumstantial to the play in terms of it i th- okay i think your reading of it is useful how about that if i were <laughs> like i no, 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 and That's I use like a that participation term. ribbon. No, no, no. Use <laughs> I don't. Uh, I would use. I use the word useful in the rehearsal room a lot. Like I think it is, it is an actionable thing that I would probably bring up if I were in rehearsals for this play. Like I would. Okay, so would, it's, so it's not it's not invalid. It's it's something that different productions of the play could choose to emphasize, lean into more than others, but it's not the central conceit. No, I think thematic, like in terms of the language, the the fact that it is her ovaries and the fact that she is not leaving a child behind. There's not a lot of language about whether or not like what she's leaving behind, if that makes sense. I mean, there is some about legacy, but it's much more about the advancement of knowledge. That's those are the terms sure. used. Yeah. Um so I think it's implicit rather than an explicit connection there. Cuz I think I mean you you could also you could you could say that you know the legacy stuff that that is defined by what she's not leaving behind like what she Also true. Yeah, she she goes through that that list. She has a dad who died, mom who died, no family, no kids, no no friends in particular like it's it's remarkable how little there is of her and the fact that like that the part of her body that would help her literally leave something behind is was was like not only unused but is going to end up being what does her in like that seems that seems somehow significant to me i don't know yeah well and there's a scene where she you know the scenes where she interacts with her students are c- pretty callous and there's like a scene where she kind of overhears them mocking her and her pronunciation of some words because of the nuance of the poetry and like being a real like tightwad about it. Um, <laughs> and there's this sense, I think, having read a bit more about Edson and her philosophy as a teacher and why she stayed so long teaching kindergarten because she's far more interested in the students and I think there was something very selfish about Vivian's work and very kind of ivory towerish to her approach to this like one man cycle of poetry it seems so niche and so for all the for all the universal themes and all of the implications of his poems and it, the play has done a very good job of making the poems feel accessible, yet feel like you would need three degrees to fully understand them. <laughs> I actually really want to commend Edson's writing for like picking a thing that is purposefully obtuse and making me want more of it. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, like, like not to, not to be 
like uneducated <laughs> or like to, to downplay somebody's achievements. But th- I think there's a lot of that kind of stuff in academia where, yeah, somebody's work is really good. And it is, it does speak to a lot of like truths about life and stuff, but also in a, in a, in a larger sense, who cares? <laughs> who cares if no one's going to go look at it? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that that's, you know, she gets into that hospital and nobody, nobody cares that she's been published on this subject and nobody, nobody cares about her scholarship and stuff. It just, it, it drives home the, the narrowness of her focus and like the, the scope of her achievements. And I think that's, it's interesting to uh, juxtapose those ac- accomplishments with what uh, Edson seems to be going for as a, you know, as a teacher herself. Like if if you go to that New York Times profile. It comes up. It's like the third or fourth hit if you Google Margaret Edson. Um, it's by Charles McGrath. It ran on February sixteenth, twenty twelve. She's like the teacher who you remembered forever. I mean, like you know, we all have those like Mrs. Dressini Poet Society. Mrs. Dressini. That yeah, <laughs> she was she was my teacher for third and fourth grade. Mm-hmm. She changed grades with us. I think I talked. I think I talked about this with you the other day, um, and she was a huge influence. I don't, you know, I think one of the few things I can remember that she actually said to me was that she thought my glasses looked studious. Like, <laughs> but it was just after I'd gotten them. It was like a huge deal. She knew I needed a compliment. Like she oh. knew that it was like I got those glasses because I read all the time and I kind of look like a doofus. And I got back from this vacation with my glasses. And she's like, you look studious and not you look great or you look charming. Not something that you knew would be a lie. Yeah. <laughs> like I was studious already and, she- and these glasses make me more like me. Good job. And she didn't like if I what if your teacher you like you got your glasses, you went and you took a test and then you got that test back the next day and it just said nerd alert on it in red pen. <laughs> what if that had happened? <laughs> I would not be here. I would be dead. I would be dead. I would. Yeah, mine was uh, his name was uh, Mr. Sheets. He was my junior and senior year English teacher, and okay. uh, you know we ran we ran through a lot of the canon. I I did like a lot of the high school English reading. I was assigned. I actually read. I I, I most of my skipping stuff was in college. I think a lot of yours was in high school. Mm-hmm. We we've mm-hmm. we've established this on the show <laughs> up until now, but um. Yeah, he was one of the first people, if not like the first person that I looked up to who was like, oh, yeah, you're you're a good promising writer. Like I I see something in this for you. Yeah. So when that's you, you need that. You need to hold on to that. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think the the thing that Edson's getting at with Vivian and with the her treatment of the medical establishment is the strive for capital K knowledge, you know, at all costs has a dehumanizing element and and not only for other people, but for the people themselves practicing the research, like they are keeping Mm -hmm. a distance. They are using their wit, you know, not in the like, haha, I made a pun wit, but like the classical Renaissance definition that involves just general rationalization and, and intelligence. Um, mm. using that to keep a distance from, you know, the boogeyman, a.k.a. death. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I do also want to say that one of the reasons, we talked about this earlier, one of the reasons that I think Edson picked the John Donne bo- poetry is not only because it was so pertinent to the themes of the play, but because it is so dense from a scholarly perspective that yeah i don't really know if her treatment of it is accurate or not uh but it also allows vivian to appear very smart which i think is important to how the story functions given that we Mm -hmm. have so little context for her otherwise and yet the play does include a scene where a mentor of hers scolds her for interpreting a, a poem incorrectly so i think that's kind of interesting uh and then later in the scene, like the nurse Susan is portrayed as like not dumb, but just not 
acad, you know, super not book smart, not su- not super book smart. Like obviously, well, she has street smarts. A successful nurse, and yes, she can ball on the streets with the best of them. Yeah. Um, but there's a really touching scene between the two of them uh, after the DNRs is put into place, where they kind of bond over just like. Susan says a word, and it's a callback to an earlier scene, but she says a word. She, like, says, oh, you can do this thing, and it'll make you sleepy. And uh, Vivian's like, oh, will it make me soporific? And she's like, I don't know, but it's going to make you sleepy. (laughs) And Vivian laughs and is like, oh, but that's what that word means. And they just kind of, like, bond over how arbitrary that, like, little difference between them is. And I thought that Edson did a really good job of both allowing Susan to be quote unquote of lower intellect without uh, putting her at a like a lower status. Sure. Though I think there there are some readings of this play that like these archetypes of the medical establishment are certainly tropes by now, like the research hungry doctor who sees patients as, you know, check marks on his resume. And the nurse with a heart of gold who sees patients for who they truly are. Like, that is certainly well-worn material right now, but... I think I I feel like I'm watching Scrubs. But but that said, my experience working with some healthcare professionals in the past year certainly bears some of that out. (laughs) Sure. Um, I mean, a lot of the time, sometimes stereotypes get to be stereotypes because there is an element of truth to them. We've talked like about I mean, that just as the often show. they're yeah. hurtful and and terrible, but you know, it's whether or not you can tear them down. It's like whether yeah. or not they they stand up to scrutiny, and they should be scrutinized. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, all the time. So yeah, it's a really good play. I th- I think if like if you're not someone who gets a lot out of reading plays, I think you might still dig this one because there's there's some meaty language in terms of you know, literary scholarship to dig through and some stuff to unpack. Uh, but if by chance anyone of any like competent ability is putting this play on near you, you should probably go see it. Um, Cynthia Nixon was, was in the play in its Broadway debut in 2012 of, right. of sex in the city fame. I think that that was uh that was part of the publicity blast that that interview came from. Uh, that's that an interview. That would yeah. make sense. Mm-hmm. Anything else, Andrew? Uh no, I mean I think that's that's most of what I've got. Do you think uh do you want a heavy question? Are you going to ask it of me? Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's do it. What Let's roll. In the in the scant few minutes we have left, what do you think about DNRs? Ooh, yikes. Is it okay? We could even just like macro it out. Are you well, like, even okay, at a place okay, okay. in your so life I, where you have a living will? Because I, don't I haven't, I haven't thought about DNRs. I don't have a will, though. Susanna and I have like talked just very casually about how we probably should have one. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I have like, I think end of life planning should be more of a thing than it is. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and things like i think there was there was an episode of planet money and sometimes i find planet money kind of crass yeah i guess Mm -hmm. because because they talk about they just talk about the money and sometimes (laughs) like the well well, you're kidding that's what what, that's what it's about but sometimes the human side of things gets kind of minimized but they they did this study of this i think i don't know if it was like a city or a county or what it was this very small subsection of america that really emphasized end of life planning where like 90% or something of the citizens had, had gone through and decided, you know, how they wanted to die or like what they wanted to do when Mm -hmm, they died. mm -hmm. And it like really reduced medical costs and stuff. So like, interesting, my my deal, my jam is that I don't want to be alive if I'm not me. Like, I don't want to be flowers for Algernon style. Yeah. Like I don't want to be, a guy in a hospital bed for five or 10 years and I'm alive and I'm a burden and mm-hmm. I don't, I'm like, maybe I'm not even aware of what's going on around me because who really knows? Like, that's just not, 
I don't want to do that to anybody. I don't want to do that to myself. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't thought about DNR stuff specifically, but I, I, I just don't, I don't want to hang. I don't want to cling to it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I hear that. I don't know. It's the closest like analog I have is my grandmother lived with me my whole life until she passed when I was like 12 or 13 or something like that. And she had had strokes. And so like I knew her when already her like she was there, but and like mentally, but her quality of life physically was impaired, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then like later on when she was actually in a nursing home and uh, there were complications and stuff like I have very vivid memories of I don't can't even imagine she was aware of what was going on and it seemed terrible at times you know and i don't know i don't know what she would have wanted she it's not what led to her passing but i don't know what i would do in that scenario you know i don't because people don't because we don't talk about it like we're you mentioned end of life planning and and sometimes people get all up in arms about like death panels or whatever it's not (laughs) that's not what it is it's just it's talking about this stuff so that you've talked about it and then when it happens you've talked about it like uh, and and so you don't end up with this situation where you have this this person who's technically alive who would not want to be if they had a choice but they don't have a choice because they didn't make the decision while they were still capable of making it yeah yeah then you run into something i it's something i'd feel a lot about obviously (laughs) i don't know well i guess the tricky part is let envisioning a scenario where i can still speak up until the very last like moment where the dnr has to be in place right like just podcasting right to the end yeah (laughs) where this podcast is going for like hopefully another hundred years uh this particular one you're listening to right now is a hundred years long um my hard drive is going to crash before we get there but more gigabytes i know i'll plug them in as we go but like Say I ha- I would just like the right to evolve my views on whatever's happening. Like I when you're sure. saying like, well, we've talked about it, so we've talked about it. I don't I I don't envision a period at the end of that conversation. Because if and I yeah, have I mean, that like conversation at forty, mm-hmm. I might feel differently at seventy, you know? Yeah, of course maybe maybe checking in is is a vital part of that i you know because people's people's views evolve and that's that's fine that's like normal but like people should have a reference like whatever your last check-in was yeah that's tough because like the the very existence of like check-ins and changing of opinions creates room for someone after the fact to say well but earlier they said this and maybe they were still thinking this and that's that's tough that's problematic yeah yeah, and it's also, I don't know, where do you draw that line? Like, if mentally they're still there, but mm-hmm. physically they're gone? If, like, mentally they're there sometimes and not other times? Like, what, you know, what is what is the right thing to do? What's the moral thing to do? What what do people want to do? I don't know. I don't know. It's 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 hard. I mean, I, I, I understand why we don't talk about it, but I think that. I think it's, not talking about it the, makes it worse. I do find it fascinating that a Planet Money episode. I don't. I don't say this to to like mock. I actually find it very fascinating that like a passionate economic argument for like why we should consider this stuff could be very helpful. You know, oh, yeah, it's the same reason. That's, I mean, that's a lot of. I mean, medical costs are going up and up and up, and a lot of the reason why is because we know how to keep people alive for a long time after they're not actually alive anymore. You know. Well, and we, the costs also go up and up and up because people are able to keep second guessing and able to keep finding other things to test. So, mm-hmm. without a capacity to kind of deal with the information in front of you. You can just keep running tests for other stuff or yeah. or mistakes will get made because of those tests. And so like that's part of the ballooning cost. So if you if you're one of the people who's listening to this being like, I don't want to be touchy feely about medicine. I just want to get better and not pay as much for it. Well, that's part of the problem. <laughs> I think it's all interwoven. Mm-hmm. Um, 
to, to kind of take us out, I want to read the last like stanza or so of Death Be Not Proud. It's not very long. Um, do it. Because it gets to the heart as to why this play gets published with a semicolon in its title. Kind of bring this thing full loop. So, Death Be Not Proud is the first line of this poem. And it says, uh, the whole time the poet is talking to death. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy, or uh, charms, can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swell'st thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. And now it's in the play, they like debate the grammar of those like last two lines and whether or not there's a comma or a semicolon between <laughs> be no more, death, thou shalt die. So like the meaning of that passage, at least as discussed in the play, is that with, with this promise of life eternal, uh, death, like the specter with the, with the scythe and everything, actually mm-hmm. has no power because death is not final, right? Death itself dies the minute you die because you go on living forever. Death has a talk to its supervisor before it can make any decisions. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, and Vivian's mentor tells her that, you know, the correct edition of this poem has it as a comma, not a semicolon, because it is just this scant breath that separates life and death. It is not a wall that needs erecting. It is not uh, a thing to be like surmounted it is merely a thing that happens and then we're on the other side Uh, yeah so kind of what we were talking about earlier andrew it's like there is an innate distance that we keep between ourselves and these topics and these scenarios um and the play seems to be arguing for closing that distance and and perhaps making it a little more if it's a wall making it more permeable if it's a distance making it shorter and more well-traveled yeah it's a good play Good. I mean, that's again. I've got you know for for Edson to just do this one great play and then to just have I'm that out. be enough. I think that's really. I'm out. Let's go read the borrowers. See you later. I that's, that's. I think that's cool. So, <laughs> uh, if you have a killer, awesome, nah, maybe killer, maybe not, not killer, the, right? <laughs> oh man, if you have a favorite teacher from earlier in your life that you want to tell us about and give some props on air. Uh, you can email us uh, everything about them or just your favorite story about them, I guess, to overduepod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter at facebook.com slash overduepod and twitter.com slash overduepod. I want to thank everybody who's reached out to us on social media this week, including Christian, Nicole, Powell, Veronica, Alicia, Tysophine, Kenny, Terry, Colleen, Renee, Ollie, Amanda, Sean, Leslie, Nada, Skyler, and a whole bunch of other people who are excited to have me talk about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, Andrew, if people, we're going to make it happen, guys, keep it up. People keep up that letter writing campaign. Wanted to find out more about the show. Where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com. That's where you can find links to iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, all of those things you can use to subscribe to the show and get new episodes as soon as they drop. Uh, we've also got uh, Amazon links to the books that we have read, the ones that we are going to read. So if you want to read along or if we talk about a book that you think is particularly interesting, you can click those by the book. We get a little bit of a cut of that. Um, if you do subscribe to the show in iTunes or Stitcher especially, um, leave us a rating or a review. We really, we really like reading them and those help us move up in the charts, which helps more people find the show. Um and that that's just that it's 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 about our self-esteem really to be like, perfectly honest it's about our self-esteem we listen to a lot of podcasts and so we're always like comparing ourselves to like the rest of the podcast ecosystem <laughs> and we're actually really impressed and embarrassed by how effusive some of you have been with your praise especially on like review systems if some of you haven't done it yet, we could use a little more. Yeah, give us that bump. Give us that um, bump. Also, also up on OverduePodcast.com, we've got a link to our Patreon page, which is a place where people who really like the show can pledge a certain amount of money per month 
to keep us running. And uh, there are all there depending on what tier you choose to uh, to donate at. There are different rewards that you get. Like Craig mentioned earlier in this show, if you donate five dollars a month, you can get a book that you really like bumped up to the top of the list. We've been doing these patron suggestions for four or five months it's now. It's been insane. <laughs> It's been a while, but like I think we've read a lot of really good, like challenging stuff. I've definitely gone way further afield than I would otherwise have felt comfortable going if I was not like doing it because somebody gave me money to do it. There are certainly <laughs> there are certainly books on the list that I would not have picked. Uh just like I would not have thought to pick. How about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean some that I hadn't even heard of. That's the best part. Yeah, like a couple, there are a couple that were recommended. Uh, Foundation was one, The Sparrow was another, that were like, they had a sequel or they had a whole series of books that came after them and that I've been like following up on, not to talk about on the show even, but just because I like those books so much. So it's been, that's been really great. Um, Craig, we have a couple other of uh, housekeeping items before we go. Can you, you want to talk about? Yeah, uh, I'll try and be real quick because uh, I know we're running a little long. Uh, our friends at Book Riot are running uh, Book Riot Live in November. You can head over to bookriotlive.com and use the code OVERDUE to get like, what is it, a 20% discount? 10 or 20 or something. It's 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 not insubstantial. You get a discount on the admission uh, fee for that weekend event it sounds like it's gonna be really cool andrew and i are hoping to attend uh margaret atwood will be there as well as some folks who run the great podcasts that book riot puts out every week as well as some of their awesome writers so you should go check that out mm-hmm. uh if you're free at the end of august you may want to pop down to philadelphia where andrew and i will be participating in the third annual philly pod fest we'll be at the awesome tattooed mom bar doing a live episode of the show which is going to be cool. <laughs> it's going to be off some kind of a chain. There will be a chain. We will get off it. We will be off all the way off. Uh, admission is free. Uh, I believe it's 21 and up because it's a bar. So like factor in that. But uh, Tattoo Moms does like free admission for stuff like this all the time where they're just happy to run a bar where cool stuff happens. So come on so down, see the yeah. thing on August 29th, right, Andrew? Saturday, Saturday, August 29th at 2 p.m. Uh, be there, be there on time because you don't want to hold us up. Um, I am pretty sure at this point, do we want to just say what we think we'll be reading? Yeah, because let's I just put us, let's just call it. Unanimous. Let's just call it. Um, we're going to be reading Go Set a Watchman, the uh, sequel by Harper Lee. Or, well, the sequel slash early draft of Go uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Uh, that has been very, very controversial of late, and I think I think we're gonna have no s- shortage of things to talk about. So just you come out, join us. We've got an event on Facebook. We've you know that's it's that's a good place to tell us that you're coming. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Andrew, what are we talking about next week? Uh, next week, you spoke and we listened. We are having special guest host Margaret H. Willison back on to talk about Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which she uh, she chose because the, the name of the of the character in the book and her name are the same name. So <laughs> uh, we recorded it last week and it was a really, really fun episode. I'm looking forward to putting it up. Awesome. All right. Uh, that's that's it for us this week. Uh, join us next Monday for that. And until then, everybody try to be happy. <laughs> <laughs>